Hello and welcome. You're listening to Peer to Peer, a segment from our newsletter In the Balance, looking at news through a gender lens. I'm Ahlem Al Khattab. In this sixth episode of Peer to Peer, I'm happy to bring you a conversation with science journalist and author Ed Young. Before becoming a writer, Ed studied zoology, then biochemistry, but ended up realizing that he'd rather explain science to others than actually be a scientist. And as it turns out, he has a knack for breaking down complex concepts into easy-to-understand pieces, for which he has received many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. He has written extensively about the world of animals over the years, and from 2020 onwards, the COVID-19 pandemic became one of his main areas of expertise. He notably wrote about long COVID from its early beginnings, giving a voice to patients, most of whom are women. Since 2015, Ed Young has been working on making his stories more inclusive. He even published in The Atlantic an article titled I spent two years trying to fix the gender imbalance in my stories, where he explains his process. More than five years later, we wanted to check in with him. In the following interview, he tells us about the steps he's taken to include more women's perspectives and how that changed his reporting. He also shares some key tips for sharper, more balanced news coverage. I was introduced to your work through Francesca Donner, who talked about you in our very first episode of Peer to Peer, the work that you did between 2016-2018 on your own reporting, your own stories, and the steps you started taking to make it more inclusive because you noticed that it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, totally. How was that? And how did it feel to, you know, notice that in the first place? It was um, it was kind of shocking. I think um, it, I I was I was surprised at how skewed things were. So let, let me tell the story. So I think this began with my colleague Adrian LaFrance, um, who did this analysis of the gender bias in her sources. So um, you know she she worked out uh, how many of the people she quotes quoting in her pieces were men, how many were women, and she found that women made up only 25% of her, of her sources. And I looked at this and I thought, like, okay, this is a good exercise to be doing. And I think I really assumed when I started doing it that it would maybe not be 50%, but, like, not far off, right? Like, I, I felt I care about equality. Um, I thought that I was doing a pretty good job in trying to, like, uh, give equal voice to um, uh, to women in science and tech and the areas that I cover. And actually, when I did this analysis on my stories, it ended up being exactly the same as what Adrian found. So it was like 25%. So men outnumbered women as, quote, as quoted experts in my pieces by a ratio of three to one. And actually, like, just, you know, from everything I've heard uh, since then, this seems to be like quite a general pattern for people who um, start doing this. You know, I've talked to lots of other journalists and friends who who've done the same exercise, 
And 25% seems to be like just a kind of industry-wide standard. And obviously there are exceptions who were like doing a good job of this from, from the get-go. But um, yeah, I was surprised and I was disappointed. Um, and and I think it, it just uh, like reaffirmed the need to do something about that. And do you think it has to do like this kind of standard has to do with the fact that just men are more present in certain types of I'm going to say leadership roles that that can be understood in different ways or is it because they are just more ready to to speak or or maybe because most of the contacts in the media are already men. Yeah, I, I think all of the above and more, right? Like I think there are lots of different factors for for why this happens. Um, I think that um, implicit or sometimes explicit biases are, are clearly important here, right? Like um, in the analysis I did, I was looking at like the, um, not only the number of people who made it to the stories, but the number of people I also reached out to. And I was clearly like reaching out to more men for comment than, than women. So let's ignore like the, do people respond to you part of the equation? Like I was getting more male sources in part because I was asking more male sources period. Um, and that was the case, even though I was, I thought of myself as like, you know, a, a decent ally and like, you know, and, and I thought that that, that ratio would have be been more equal. It absolutely wasn't. Um, and I think that that's pretty common, right? Like uh, part of, part of the reason these skews exist is that even well-meaning people, um, have these biases that affect their decisions in quite small ways that they might not even perceive. And then, of course, you have a lot of explicit biases. You have a lot of, yeah, a lot of people who might never actually say it in an interview. But like, it's pretty clear. I've, re I've read a lot of journalists who clearly only ever interview men. So there's that. Um, I think that you could argue that some of this just comes from like, a combination of time pressure and existing skews and representation like feeding off themselves. So if you are a journalist on a tight deadline and you need to find someone to talk to, one easy way is to look at previous coverage of the same topic and then look at the people who are interviewed then. And if those people are disproportionately men, then so will the people who are quoted in whatever new pieces out there. And then that cycle just reinforces itself. So that's one of those mechanisms. And then there's the fact that as I think a lot of people who've tried to correct the skew have found, it is a little harder to get um, women sources to uh, speak on the record than, than male sources. And I think there's a bunch of different reasons for that too, right? They, um, some of it is just, uh, you know, let's be honest, like there's a lot of overconfident, mediocre men out there who will happily talk about anything you ask them to talk about, regardless of whether they have expertise on it. Uh, whereas I think women that are more acculturated to downplay their own expertise. So there is a, a gender divide in like how people value their own expertise and whether they are likely to overplay or underplay their own expertise. There's also the fact that in fields where, um, where women are already underrepresented and the fields I cover, so science, health and technology absolutely fall into that category. Women in those fields are going to have more on their plate. They're going to have more tasks. They are going to have uh, more requests of their time. They might have a higher teaching load. This is very common in, in STEM fields um, because 
of societal biases they might have to deal with home care and childcare on top of like all their other stuff. So th- like if all else being a- equal, I think if you take a man and a woman in the same position in the fields that I cover, uh, the woman is just going to have less time. And that will also contribute to like their willingness or their ability to say yes to an interview. And uh, there are a lot of women who are who might be more reticent to say yes to an interview because being in public and um, being a public voice, especially in controversial issues, is much more likely to turn them into a target of harassment and so on. And social media. Totally, yeah. So there is a cost to saying yes to an interview that women, and especially women of color or anyone non-binary or trans, might experience that um, you know uh, a a male source would not. Um, there are lots of reasons why this skew exists. Then, and I think you can react to that in two ways. One common way that I've seen is people saying, "Well, it's not the journalist's fault." You know, there's all these reasons out there. I'm just doing my best and trying to pick, quote unquote, the best people, and here is what I get. And my view is, well, no, like, it's our job to try and adjust for these factors. Like, if it is true, and and I have found this a little bit um, in my work, that on average, it is harder to get a, a female source to say yes to an interview than a male source then the solution to that is you just ask more women right <laughs> like you you then oh, you then overweight your requests knowing that this is the case because otherwise you're just like throwing your hands up and capitulating to the same social dynamics that have landed us in this unenviable position in the first place and that's something I wanted really to ask you about. What are the actual concrete steps that you started taking to make your reporting more representative and to manage to have these voices? The most important step was just tracking the data um, like in a very regular, frequent, rigorous way. So, um, And th- that makes it sound like you know, more complicated than it actually was. I, I just had a very, very, very simple Excel spreadsheet. Of like every story, I wrote down the number of men and women who I contacted for a comment or for a quote, the number of people who got back to me and were featured in the actual story. I think I also had a column for what proportion were people of color. Like I've seen a lot of like outfits do this in a much, much better and systematic way. Um, you know, that also includes like, um, you know, whether people are disabled, uh, gender identification, like sexual orientation, like, there's a lot of, lots of axes you could do this for. But like mine was just super simple. And all that did was give me a huge amount of accountability. Like I could see, um, am I actually still like hovering at 25% or am I making progress? And if I'm making progress, like am I losing progress from month to month or am I stable? And like, I think if you do this, for a few, like for me, I think at least a year and maybe more, then it just becomes automatic. I ended up like stopping the the tally like midway through my pandemic reporting just because I like I ran out of time um, and energy. But I can tell you, like I know what the stats were at the start of the pandemic reporting. I can tell you that they stayed the same for the rest of it because like I now know what it feels like to have more equitable reporting. So that's one thing, just like actually 
keeping an eye on the numbers. Um, but then the other was just simple, which was just trying to find more people, um, find more women, find more people of color. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it takes a little bit more work. You know, there are very niche subfields that I write about sometimes where there actually aren't that many women who, who work in the space. But like all the techniques that I use to find sources are the same. Um, you know, they, they, I'm just deploying them. I'm, I'm just doing the same search, but a little more. You know, I'm not just like doing a Google search and like contacting everyone who turns up on like, the first page. I'm going to go to like the third page or the fourth page. But it was interesting to me how that it definitely took more time, but it didn't take like that much more time. You know, it, it was like the matter of spending like an extra half an hour on a piece. Um, and it was, and I think the results are well worth it. You said you later on you knew how it felt to have that inclusion in your stories. How did it affect the quality of the pieces you were writing to have these voices that we weren't hearing elsewhere? I, I mean, I think immensely. Um, so just just take pandemic reporting women are much, much more likely than men to suffer from long-term chronic illnesses, uh, long COVID, um, ME-CFS, like a, a lot of those that, that are really important for our thinking about the pandemic right now. Um, women were much more likely than men to struggle with like childcare responsibilities in the early pandemic. Like their, their professional lives were upended more. Um, the women in science had a harder time getting recognized and um, finding the time to do their work for, for a variety of different reasons. So I think going for a more equitable slew of voices does several things. It, it gets you perspective that are just missing, right? Like there are, so many truly terrible long COVID pieces that like largely interview male doctors and not patients, uh, most of whom are women, and most of whom are ignored, and most of whom have deep expertise about their conditions. So just in terms of like how much other people you are talking to know about the thing you're writing about, just trying to get more women in the pieces uh, just increases the the overall spread of knowledge that I'm tapping into. And I could argue the same for, for lots of different axes of diversity, right? Like um, talking to people in the disability community has been absolutely crucial to my understanding of the pandemic. And those voices are often completely missing. Um, you know, disability scholars, uh, people who are immunocompromised, they're often written about but rarely like actually allowed to speak for themselves. Um, so there's there's that. Um, I think that it also just diversifies the source pool more generally. So um, there was a big problem and still is in, in COVID reporting where like the same, I don't know, 20 people, most of whom are men, get quoted again and again and again in every piece. And that's hugely problematic because it makes the industry as a whole incredibly vulnerable. Any one of those people is actually full of shit. <laughs> and some of them, some of them totally are. Um, so I think going for part of the discipline of trying to get um, uh, more equitable sourcing also forces me to do things like find new people who don't get quoted in media stories, like reaching out to people who who haven't talked to the press a lot. I added 
a standard rule for all of my pandemic pieces that like half of the people I talked to had to be someone I've never talked to before. Um, and in that, in addition to, you know, wanting to get a certain proportion of women, people of color and, and um, all, all the rest. I think like that diversity of, of sourcing massively strengthens the ideas in the actual pieces. Um, I really cannot overstate how important that was. And working on these stories with these voices during the pandemic actually led you to win a Pulitzer Prize. Do you feel like with the importance of such an award for journalists in general, does it signal that oh yeah, we need more of this kind of journalism where we hear these different voices and have just generally more representation? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, would, I would hope it does. I'm not sure it quite works that way, but I do feel like this, this feels much more um, in the mainstream conversation now than it was when I first did that analysis in 2015. And to be clear, I'm not taking credit for that. I think there's like a huge movement of people who've been doing this kind of work in their respective organizations and trying to really push for more diverse sourcing. And I think like readers want this too. And a lot of readers are just now mad if they see um, a lack of diversity in sourcing and will call, call you out in it. Um, you know, I, I think if you write a piece that only, that only quotes men, uh, you will get flack for it. And rightly so. I've seen a lot of people very willingly do this kind of work, um, to, to try and, uh, diversify their pool of sources. And I think other people need to be pushed into doing that. You know, the, the problem in in our industry in, in journalism is also that um, it's not just that people are interviewing predominantly white men, it's that the industry itself is dominated by white men. Like that's sort of part of the problem. It's another reason why these skews exist. It's like it's you know it's like seeking like. Um, as a result of that, the responsibility for fixing this problem falls upon people who are part of majority groups in, in journalism. Like, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> you can't leave the problem of gender bias and sourcing down to women journalists alone. Um, like people like me have a responsibility to do something about it too. And, and I feel that like across all the axes of diversity that I've talked about, I think it, it requires individualist, individual journalists to push. It requires organizations as a whole to recognize that this is part of doing good work you know this isn't just diversity for the sake of it you don't pay lip service to it and if you do like you should rethink like what you're what you're actually doing you know the 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 point is if we do this our journalism becomes better like it's a moral issue but it's also an issue about like our craft um and and i think that's one another reason to take it seriously and do you have like specific uh, tips for, for example, men journalists who want to start doing that, to start including women's stories and perspectives in their reporting? I, I mean, so just do it. Uh, it it's not that hard. Um, <laughs> for God's sake, don't like make a big show of it. Like don't expect cookies and, and brownie points for, for doing this. <laughs> uh, do not 
um, do not do things that I've seen people do. Like you, you ask people for an interview and say like, you know, because I'm trying to like get more women in my pieces. Um, right. Like, don't, don't do that. But, um, <laughs> just, just do it because it's, because it's the right thing to do. You know, I, I had like, I had some reservations about writing the piece where I talked about my process of doing this and why I did it, because I didn't want it to sound like, you know, Oh, like I am, I, here is another guy who's just swooping in and like trying to pretend that he's like saving the day. I, I wrote the piece because I, I hoped it would, it would, um, inspire other journalists to do the same thing. I hope that it would give like ammunition to people who are pushing for this in their newsrooms to say like, here, this is why you should do it. And also it's not that hard. Um, like I ultimately like, I like, I don't, I don't care about the recognition for it. I, I like, I, as I said, I am only one of many people who've pushed for the same thing. I, I just want, I just want it done. So like my, my advice to people is like, it really isn't that hard. Like, just do it. And you don't have to be loud about it. <laughs> you don't have to be loud about it. For God's sake, don't be loud about it. Like, just do it. Quietly do it. Feel happy that you've, like, made improvements to our our industry. Don't, like, expect a pat on the back. I think, the you know, the, the funny thing is... It says a lot about where we are that if you do this, like if even if you just like even if the proportion is like fifty percent, it's it's sh still shocking to me how often people notice um, because because it's not common. Um, like just just getting an equal number of men and women in, in like big stories, there's I, like pe people absolutely notice. Um, especially in areas like science where where there's there's already a huge skew in the field yeah but then at the same time like it's important that for instance male journalists kind of talk about these things totally. because there's that idea of representation if you don't see people also doing this thing you won't really try to do it yourself yeah i i think so um i i, I certainly think so um and that's part of why I, part of why I did that piece. And that's why we have you with us for this episode. You're actually the very first male journalist <laughs> we have on, and we weren't really trying to like have it just for women journalists. Sure. It's just that women journalists are mostly the people who are talking about these things. So we're very happy to have you. No, thank you. We also wanted to have you specifically this month because in our newsletter we are focusing on women and health and like it all started from this idea that when we talk about women's health it's mostly like most people think about reproductive health but there's so much to it mm -hmm. and like you said during the pandemic it started being more and more visible that women weren't living the same thing as men. Sure. And so with all the stories you did and all these people you talked to, what are some things that you yourself learned about women and health? So I started writing about long COVID in the middle of 2020 at a time when I think, you know, that um, most people, including most people in medicine, didn't really know about uh, about it at all um 
people who had chronic illnesses did. Uh, they were already talking about it. People who were, had long COVID themselves were already talking about it. Those people were um, disproportionately women. Um, I have learned a lot about um, that entire world of neglected chronic illness. Um, I have learned a lot about the factors that um, that mean that uh, women who have such illnesses get dismissed by the medical profession, by their friends, by their family, by their employers. Um, you know the the kinds of gaslighting that ensue, um, the the toll it takes on their lives and their both physical and mental health. I think it's a huge, huge problem that affects a substantial number of people and um, and that is not discussed nearly enough. Um, I think the fact that these kinds of illnesses disproportionately affect women and it is so much easier and so much more common for people to dismiss women's pain um, contributes to the neglect of diseases that we really need to be taking a lot more seriously so yeah I, I think this is a whole like sector of health that i think is crucial that i didn't know a lot about until i started doing reporting on this and you know for anyone's listening if you want to know more about this there are several books that i would recommend reading um megan o'rourke uh, wrote um the invisible kingdom that came out recently about these kinds of chronic illnesses. My dear friend Sarah Ramey wrote a book called The Lady's Handbook to Her Mysterious Illness. Uh, Maya Dusenbury wrote a book called Do Not Harm about medical gaslighting. These are all great starting places. Uh, I think all very important books. And what would you give journalists who happen to cover health, but not exclusively? What you know, I don't know, advice, simply you would give them to have their reporting more representative of the reality of women's health? One of the most important aspects to long COVID coverage for me has been to give people, to make people the protagonists of their own story. Often I see long haulers and people with other similar chronic illnesses be like, you know, they are, they are the lead anecdote. Um, some like sad, gruesome details are given about their lives. You get an emotional reaction and then we cut to doctors, um, discussing their condition. Uh, in the pieces I've written, I've tried to make patients um the centerpieces of their story they because they are deep wells of knowledge they have agency over their own lives even though those lives may be severely restricted by their illnesses and they deserve to be treated with not only compassion but also respect um so you know they that 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 um that belief and that value informs all of the work that I've done in this space. And and I, I honestly think, again, this isn't just a moral issue for me. It it also I think makes the work stronger. It it makes the it makes the journalism better. Well thank you so much for taking the time for sharing all of that. Yeah, no thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Peer to Peer. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found it as thought-provoking as we did. And thanks again to Ed Young for his time and his insights. For ideas, tools, and resources to help you in your lifelong quest for interesting angles and important stories, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter and visit our website towards-equality.com. Thank you.